0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, if you uh, take your Bibles and turn to Zephaniah. If you were here for the Zambian presentation, you'll know that's exactly how they say it. Zephaniah. Hosea. Amos. Right? It's So, Zephaniah chapter 3, and starting at verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day... Will be said of Jerusalem to Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, the victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy, with loud singing. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden to them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. Even at that time, when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray for God's help. Father, thank you that you've given us your holy word We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and Father, we pray that this text this afternoon would be a true blessing, encouragement, and comfort to many of your people. We pray that you would do good to us through your word, and so we pray for your help now in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned on Wednesday night, I've taught Old Testament prophets now uh, six times in Zambia. And they, um, there's, there's one brother who's actually visited here, his name's Peter, and he, I have him every, he, he comes to every class, um, and he has taught us a way to memorize the minor prophets, okay? Anybody have trouble kind of memorizing the minor prophets? Okay. One honest soul, all right? Yeah, so if we were like to have a Bible quiz, I'd go to the minor prophets and like, 75% of you would flunk, right? So this is, this is the way to remember the order of the minor prophets in Zambia, of course. Are you ready? Goes, Hojo Am Ojo Mina Haze Haze Ma There you go. <laughs> That's the minor prophets. Hojo Hosea, Joel, Am, Amos, right? Am, Ojo, Obadiah, Jonah, okay? And then, Mina, me, Micah, Nah, Nahum, and there's the tricky part Hase, okay? Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haze haze Haggai, Zechariah Ma Malachi. So it's that easy. Hojo <laughs> Am Ojo Mina Haze Haze Ma Alright. <laughs> All right, there'll be a quiz right after sermon. So the book of Zephaniah is this really, it's amazing little book. So in Hebrew Bible, and um, I know when I was gone, I listened to one of Charlie's, I think it was Sunday school, and he was talking about um, the significance of Chronicles being the last book of Hebrew canon. And um, I might do something in the future, because there's, there's a story that's told in the order of Hebrew canon. We actually follow the Septuagint's canonical order in our English Bibles. Hebrew Bible tells a story. The Twelve, the Minor Prophets, in the Hebrew Bible is one book titled The Twelve. The reason it's one book is because the rabbis saw that there was a unified message in the Minor Prophets. Even though they span from the earliest time, Joel is probably the earliest of the, of the prophets, probably 8th century BC, all the way to Malachi, or as Diane Gamble used to say, Malachi, the first Italian prophet, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is about 455 BC. And so you've got this span, you've got northern uh, kingdom prophets, you have southern kingdom prophets, and then you have two prophets, actually two Assyria or Nineveh, Jonah, who actually preaches and sees the repentance of Nineveh, and Obadiah, who preaches a hundred years later and preaches judgment on Nineveh, which means their repentance didn't last, but two generations, maybe. Okay. And so the minor prophets actually just absolutely glorious, and you get to this little book, Zephaniah, <clears throat> and Zephaniah is. Name means he whom Yahweh shelters. And a number of times in the book, there's a play on his name of Yahweh being the shelter of his people. And so Zephaniah ministers during the time of King Josiah. All right, so kids, you remember King Josiah? King Josiah. You remember King Josiah, good king or bad king? Good king, really good king, right? Boy king. And during Josiah's time, there was reformation in Judah. And in fact, God delays judgment against the southern kingdom because of Josiah. And it is believed that Josiah, so Jeremiah has a very long ministry, um, but it is believed that it is the influence of Jeremiah and Zephaniah that actually contribute and aid the reforms during the time of Josiah. And so he ministers between 640 and 609 BC, and the book itself follows a very common pattern of the prophets. And so uh, the opening chapter gives us the judgment against the sins of Judah. And we're not going to look at all of these texts. Maybe we'll do Zephaniah in three or four or five or six messages on a Wednesday or something sometime. But there are these judgment against the sins of Judah, and there were three national sins. Now, this morning, I mentioned that the prophets, the prophets always, their ministry was always rooted in the Mosaic covenant and the curses and the blessings, That's why the, the prophets were considered covenant enforcers or covenant prosecutors. They were prosecuting the nation on the basis of the covenant, all right? And in fact, you have oracles that are called Reeve oracles that are um, basically lawsuits. God is bringing a lawsuit against his people on the basis of a broken covenant, okay? And so the, the sins of the covenant, uh, against the covenant, almost always go, fall into two categories, that is idolatry or injustice, which, as I mentioned this morning, is either a violation of the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or a violation of the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? And so that's why, for instance, in the minor prophets, you have a heavy, heavy emphasis on the injustice that was going on of the, um, the so-called people of God taking advantage of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And so in Zephaniah, you have three national sins that are brought up almost right out of the gate, and the first, of course, ends up being idolatry. And so idolatry, in light of the covenant, is spiritual whoredom, spiritual adultery. Because the picture was supposed to be that Israel was supposed to be married to Yahweh, and Israel, like an unfaithful wife, goes whoring after other gods, and that is nothing less than The pursuit of idols. So the people of God are guilty of idolatry, but they're also guilty of syncretism. And and I do have to show you this, because this this ends up making uh, a little more sense. So if you look at verse 5 of chapter 1... And so God's talking about stretching out his hand in judgment, and he's going to stretch out his hand and those against those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven. So what are they doing? They're worshiping the stars. They're idolaters. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord. So is swearing in the Old Testament, it's not cursing, but is swearing in the Old Testament an act of worship? Yes. It is, it is most definitely. And so they swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. So they're doing both. And so not only do you have just outright pagan idolatry, worshiping the stars, worshiping the Baals, but you also have this idea of syncretism, of mixing together the true Old Testament religion of worshiping Yahweh, then combined with worshiping other gods. And by the way, this is a problem all over the world. Okay, if you go if you go down, for instance, down to Mexico, what you will find is you will find um, um, a practice called Santeria. Santeria is nothing other than the combination of native um, Voodoo married to Roman Catholicism. So you'll have Chicken bones and candles and a statue of the Virgin Mary. Okay, Syncretism, bringing together two. And so this was one of the national sins of Israel. And then the third was an indifference to God himself. And so you see that in 1, 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. And then verse 12, and it will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant. The, the, the picture is actually thickening on their Lees. It's like the idea of, of, of water becoming more and more coagulated as it settles. This is the picture of this spiritual stagnation who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. And so there was idolatry, there was syncretism, there was an indifference towards God. And then Zephaniah goes in and gives one of the most vivid descriptions of the day of the Lord. And he tells the people the day of the Lord is near." Now, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is any time where God intervenes and visits, whether it's Israel or a nation, for the purpose of divine judgment. So there's a sense in which in the old, in old testament history there would be a, multi, a multitude of days of the lord but all of those days of the lord end up pointing in a sense to the ultimate day of the lord which is the final act of divine judgment on the nations and so there is this appeal, that, so the warning actually leads, there's a day of wrath coming, and then there is an appeal, seek the Lord before the day comes. And so the, the very idea of this, of this message of gloom and darkness and judgment, that is an inducement for people to seek the Lord. That, that's why whether it was back during the times of the prophets or or even during our times, that's why the preaching of the holiness of God and a coming judgment is actually an act of mercy. It is an act of mercy because it warns people to flee from the wrath to come before it's too late. And so... You know, as, as much as we want to relegate hellfire and brimstone preaching to Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans and to a bygone day, there is a reason why they experienced awakenings and revivals, and it was because the Day of Judgment was a reality to people. Zarcy Sproul said, we've gone from Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, to God in the hands of angry sinners. And we need to get back to preaching the day of the Lord is coming. And you better be prepared to meet your God. And so that's the message. And there's this, there's this sense where Zephaniah gives this appeal. And, and if you notice chapter 2 and verse 3, this is, the, this is the high point of the appeal. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Any word there that actually makes you a little uncomfortable? (laughs) Yeah, I think perhaps kind of stands out as the word like, ah, a little more assurance would be nice, please, right? And um, I want to say that that's a common feature in the prophets to give an appeal to come to repentance and then to put a a conditional spin on what God may do, okay? Now, don't think that that means if you humble yourself and you genuinely repent, that God will say, okay, well, I'm gonna flip a coin, okay? You ever see No Country for Old Men? Heads or tails, right? If you haven't, don't go and watch it. It's not arbitrary. So let's say let's say I had a son who didn't uh, keep up his room. This is just totally theoretical right now. <laughs> and I said, now, "Now look, son. Your mom and I have told you you need to keep your room clean. Okay? You have not. You just haven't. We've asked you again and again." And again. And you continue to be a slob. As a result, you are going to be grounded for 15 years. You'll be spanked morning and night for 15 years. No quarter. And then... At the end of 15 years, we're going to burn your room down. Okay? That's the punishment. But then if I say, but if you humble yourself and you start keeping your room clean, perhaps we'll relent of that punishment. What does the perhaps do? The perhaps keeps him from presumption. The perhaps prevents him from just an external facade or show. The perhaps puts a condition on it that that all of a sudden becomes the reality check of what's really going on in here. I need to do the right thing and if I do... There is an opportunity for me to escape the consequences, but I know he's watching. I know he's looking. I know he's observing. I know that he sees my heart. So the perhaps is not as big of a downer as you think it is. It's a test of genuineness and authenticity and sincerity. And so there's this marvelous, there's this marvelous call. And then, the oracle of judgment is an inducement to seek the Lord. And then there's the judgment of the nations. In chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 8, you have God's, God's just judgment on the nations. Now what happens in chapter 3 is starting in verse 9, there's the promise of salvation. Remember this morning, I, I, I used Hosea as an example. Hosea 9, I for, I'm going to forsake you. Hosea 14, I'm going to heal your apostasy. This is the pattern of the prophets laying out the sins of the people, laying out the consequences of those sins, laying out the judgment on Israel or Judah or both, and then also judgment on the nations. And then what happens invariably with almost all of the prophets is they turn around and they end on a note of salvation. And that note of salvation is not ultimately contingent upon them humbling themselves and being repentant. It is actually contingent upon God taking the initiation by his divine grace to do in the people, what they can't do for themselves. This is why in these promises of salvation and restoration that we see in the prophets, they are often connected with the idea of a renewed or a new covenant. God doing in us what we cannot do for ourselves. So the last, the final oracle is an oracle of salvation. And in verses 14 through 20, which we read, in a sense, what you have is a picture of new covenant redemption. So Zephaniah focuses on the day of the Lord. And so the judgment is going to come. And so judgment against Israel, judgment against Judah, those historical judgments are portends of a coming judgment. But that judgment is never the final word. God actually promises to purify for himself a remnant and to gather those people, to gather the lame, to gather the sick, to gather the blind, to gather for himself a people. And it is from that remnant at the end of Zephaniah that God's going to do what? God's going to create a brand new people. It's absolutely glorious. You know what it is? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so God doesn't wait for his people to get their act together. He calls to, by the way, if you pay attention, here's free advice. When you read your Bible, pay attention. (laughs) The stuff you can learn when you pay attention is just remarkable. And so pay attention to this magnificent um, in Israel's history, guess what happens? There are times of repentance in Israel's history. But guess what? Those times never ever last, and most of the time, they're phony. Even when it sounds good, if you pay close attention, you realize that it's not as good as it sounded. Let us seek the Lord. Let us go. He is torn. He will heal. This is Hosea 4, and, um, or Hosea 6. And, and it, you're like, it sounds good. And then God turns around and he says, Ephraim, I know that your loving kindness is like the morning dew. Right? You get the picture. Your words sound good. You look like you're moving in the right direction. But there's no substance. This is the history of Israel. And the history of Israel is our history. These things, Paul says, were written for us upon whom the ends of the age have come. So here's the glorious pattern. God calls to repentance. God prosecutes his people. God executes judgment. And that's not the final word. God intervenes by amazing, staggering grace. He rescues a people for himself who simply do not deserve it. And that brings us to verse 17, which I'm going to go through like kind of fast, but kinda not. Whatever you interpret that to mean. Verse 17. So o. Palmer Robertson, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, says Zephaniah 3.17 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Right? So we're just going to take this just bit by bit, all right? And so we're going to we're going to make some 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 exegetical points that are important, but I want, what I want you to see more than anything else is, is I want you, I want your, your, your ears to be turned into eyes and your eyes to awaken your spiritual taste buds. All right? Can you do that after lunch? Okay. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. That's the first statement. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. That, that statement, by the way, ends up being the way that God says, Israel, I'm keeping my covenant promise to you. What is the covenant promise? The covenant promise is, is, is summed up in three parts. I will be your God you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. So, in the midst of this oracle of restoration, when God says, Yahweh, your God, Yahweh, that is the God of the covenant, Yahweh, your God, will be in your midst, he is saying, I am going to fulfill my covenant promise to you and then when he says he's going to be in your midst he's actually making a statement that that connects to a much bigger old testament principle which is we could call it the emmanuel principle emmanuel god with us so anytime god says i'm going to be in your midst there is a sense in which that is the Emmanuel principle, God with us. And of course, when is that fulfilled in its height? When is that fulfilled in its zenith? Here it is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glories of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The Emmanuel principle finds its ultimate fulfillment in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So when God says, Yahweh your God is in your midst, that is going to be preeminently fulfilled when Jesus Christ takes on human flesh and dwells among his people. That's amazing. And do you understand that the Emmanuel principle doesn't stop because Jesus ascends to heaven. Jesus actually... You do understand that if Jesus then ascends to heaven and now he's in heaven and we're on earth, all of a sudden it looks like the Emmanuel principle is actually disrupted, but it's not because Jesus says, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. I'm gonna give you my spirit and my spirit's gonna live in you and my spirit's gonna dwell in you and my spirit's gonna guide you and teach you and the spirit's gonna gonna glorify me. In other words, the Holy Spirit, you ready? Ready? is the vicar of Christ. Okay? Forget Pope Francis, who's just a liberal hippie with a funny hat. He's nothing. The real vicar of Christ is the Holy Spirit. He is the Christ substitute among his people who mediates the very presence of Jesus in our midst. And so, by the way, this isn't really part of the sermon, but it's really good. What happens is so during this time, when Jesus is in heaven, we're on earth, Jesus' spirit is actually dwelling in our midst corporately and individually, mediating the very presence of Jesus. So God with us is still absolutely true. But then one of these days, in a new heaven and a new earth, we will actually We will will mutually co-inhabit God and God in us in the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with him and he in us forever. So the Emmanuel principle then is taken to its highest height in the new heavens and the new earth. Back to Zephaniah. He's a mighty warrior who gives victory. Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty warrior who gives victory. Th- this word, mighty warrior, uh, mighty one, uh, a warrior, a victorious warrior, a mighty warrior, the Hebrew word gibor uh, just, uh, just generically means in a sense a mighty man. And so in the theological word book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew root is commonly associated with warfare. And has to do with the strength and vitality of the successful warrior. And so Yahweh is the hero, the warrior king, or Opalama Robertson says, a mighty hero. And so, so here's, here's here's the promise. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. <coughs> a mighty hero. You know, there's one hero in the Bible story. And it's not Abraham. And it's not Moses. It's God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. There's one hero. It's not you. It's not me. It's not Peter or Paul. It's God Himself. And so He is this mighty hero who does what? Who actually gives victory. So the word here, yeshah, is to be saved or be, to de- be delivered or to grant victory. So going all the way back to Deuteronomy 20 and verse 4, for Yahweh your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So in, in, in the Bible, there are all kinds of deliverances, there are all kinds of victories, But this victory happens because, one, God himself is in our midst, and two, he is the victorious warrior, the mighty hero who is among us. And so if our mighty hero, our victorious warrior, is in our midst, the most natural thing for him to do, dwelling in the midst of his people, is to save That's his work. The mighty hero who saves. Now we get to my favorite part. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Doesn't that sound weird? It Sounds shocking to me. Brian Borgman, God's going to rejoice over you with gladness. Daniel Corey, God's going to rejoice over you with gladness. It's shocking because what's natural is for us to rejoice over him, which he's already said back in verse 14 Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph over Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. That's natural. If the mighty warrior is in our midst, the hero who saves and and he saves us, then the natural response is for us to rejoice and be glad over him. And that's right and that's good, but Zephaniah says something different, and that is he is actually rejoicing over us with gladness. Palmer Robertson again, he says, that Almighty God should derive delight from his own creation is significant in itself, but that the Holy One should experience ecstasy over the sinner is incomprehensible. Let me use Forsler as an example just because he's sitting right there. So I like Brian a lot, he's a friend. I enjoy his company. I think he's funny. He's just, he's helpful. He's a servant. There's a lot of stuff about Brian that I really like. But I've never walked up to him and said, I rejoice over you with gladness. (laughs) That'd be weird. Right? Because there's other stuff about Brian (laughs) that would call that into question right? That goes for any one of us, right? It goes for any one of us. So Palmer Robertson's point is that God would actually rejoice over his creation is significant, but that he would rejoice as the holy one over a sinner is incomprehensible. Why is it incomprehensible? Because you have to ask, what is there to rejoice over in me? The sin and the rebellion in my heart, the sin and rebellion in God's people recorded in Zephaniah evokes judgment from God and rightfully so. But that judgment is not the last word. It's God's amazing and stunning grace that has the last word. And so here's you want to know why he can rejoice over us with gladness? It goes right back to verse 15. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel the Lord is in your midst you will fear disaster no more and so how does he rejoice over us with gladness why does he rejoice over us with gladness it is not and it cannot be because of our own righteousness And him rejoicing over us with gladness is not even initiated by our own humility or repentance. Here's here's how God rejoices over you and he rejoices over me. Those whom Yahweh shelters in the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ are the recipients of his mercy. And so he shelters us under the blood and he shelters us under the righteousness of Christ and he can rejoice over us us with joy and gladness because we are under the blood and the righteousness of his perfect son so what God ultimately rejoices in and takes gladness in is not is is not inherently or innately you he rejoices over you because Christ is for you that's all that's all. And so you got to imagine this. This is this is stunning. And one of my one of my favorite books of all time, John Piper, The Pleasures of God. He says, and he's talking about this verse, he says, this means that when we take refuge in him, we appeal for salvation, not on the basis of our track record, which has fallen so short of God's glory, but on the basis of Jesus' vindication of the Father's glory. In this way, even though we were sinners who have dishonored God's glory, the glory of God becomes the foundation of our appeal for we're hiding in the one who lived and died and rose again to glorify the passion of God for his own name and the mercy of God to save Christ's name, therefore, Christ's name and therefore God's name and God's honor is at stake whenever we fly to Jesus for refuge and bank on his worth instead of our own. This is why there's no contradiction in saying that God loves his name above all things and yet is committed with all his heart to do good to his people, the people who hope in Jesus He will not turn away from doing good to them. He rejoices in doing good for them. And for all who can believe it, he exalts over us with loud singing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. You ever feel your, your own sins condemning you? You ever feel your own conscience convicting you? Guilty. Guilty. Do you know what it is for the tempter to come and to point out our sins, the accuser of the brethren? You ever know what it is to actually be in the quietness of your own, in your own mind, your own heart, and... How can I be forgiven? I mentioned before, but a few weeks after I would brain surgery, I was still on a, a lot of medication, and I woke up on a Saturday morning, and I was absolutely terrified that my sins weren't forgiven. Now, that went all day Saturday and all day Sunday, My sister came and visited me and provided a annoying distraction for a while. And then the next day, it was all over again. I said, you know what I did? Just did what I knew I was supposed to do. Read your Bible, pray, read your Bible, pray. What Would he pray, God help me? Please. There's not a whole lot more to say. You know what I would have loved to have heard? God, God rejoices over you with gladness. The next line, he will be silent in his love. If you have the ESV, it says he will quiet you by his love. The idea is he'll he'll calm you by his love. And although that's true, I don't think that that's the best translation. I think actually he will be quiet in his love, which is the way the New American Standard does it, actually provides a better contrast of he rejoices over us with gladness and then he is quiet over us, there's silent over us in his love, and then we get to a ringing cry. So there's, there's this wonderful progression. And so you go from rejoicing and gladness to now being quiet in his love. And you go, well, what is that? What is that? Quiet in his love. And I was preaching this passage. Zach was um, maybe six years old. We were on Hornet, so this is twenty um, how old is he huh okay, so this is twenty five years ago twenty five years ago, and when that kid was six we, we spanked him morning, noon, and night. okay and it's not like he was like this evil little kid. he was just like always doing something wrong and so he was he was, he was always being, he was always being corrected, he was always being disciplined, he was always being spanked and and um so j- for those of you who know Dolores, actually um Dolores came to visit one time, and uh, can I tell this story? Okay, all right, so <laughs> So Dolores comes to visit one time and and she was of the Benjamin Spock perspective when Ariel was a kid, so Ariel never got a spanking ever. She should have had more than anybody could count, but she didn't have any, even a one. And so Dolores comes in the door and Ariel says, or or she says to Ariel, where's Brian and Zachary? And Ariel says, oh, Zach is getting a spanking. And she straightens up and she says, I can't be here for that. And she turns around and walked outside. So I come out and I said, "Where's, where's your mother?" He, well, she's outside. She doesn't want to be in here when you're spanking Zach. So I said, "Oh." So she walks back in the house, and I go, "That's it, Zach. Let's go for another spanking." <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, so this kid, this kid was just, I, I like tore a row kit tater cuff spanking this kid. <laughs> Had a rough day put him to bed and I walk into his room while he's asleep and I look at him and I think he's so well behaved when he's asleep and I just sat there and I just looked at him I didn't say a word And as I stood there in silence, the fatherly affection of my own heart for that little boy just grew and grew and grew and overflowed. When God is quiet over us in his love, There's no word of correction, no word of rebuke. It is just the fatherly affection of his heart welling up over us without a word. That is more wonderful. Than words can describe. He rejoices over us with gladness. He's quiet over us in his love. And then the last part, he will exult over you with loud singing. So we move from, from God being silent over us in his love to now loud singing. New American Standard, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. ESV, actually a little better. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So the word exalt, is the, the, the root idea is a vigorous, enthusiastic expression of joy. Amazing. And then the ringing cry or loud singing, there's a reason why it's loud singing. So theological word book of the Old Testament, the jubilation, which is the main thrust of the root, is everywhere indicated in the context of music and singing. In many cases, the jubilation could equally be expressed as shouting in Song. John Piper says, Can you imagine this? A mere spoken word out of his mouth brings the universe into existence. What if God lifted up his voice and not only spoke but sang? You guys ate too much for lunch. That should make you incredibly happy right now. You should at least be like, amen, amen. The God who created all things is the God who redeems us and then sheltered us, shelters us in his son and then sings over us. If you're in Christ, God is not an angry father with you. He has been completely vindicated, justified, and satisfied through the death of his son as our judge. He as our judge is not how he relates to us anymore. He relates to us as a heavenly father, and that heavenly father has a joy and a gladness over his people. He's quiet over us in his love, and he rejoices over us with loud singing. And you say, well, what what about... What about my sins? What about all the times that I, that I fail? What about all the times when I don't do what I'm supposed to do? Okay, so God is a father because he loves us. He will in fact discipline us, right? There's, there's Hebrews 12. But here's the thing is that when God sees us in our sin, you have to keep in mind a couple of things. First of all, God never, ever, ever ever looks at us in our sin from the perspective of judgment ever again because Jesus Christ bore that judgment in our place. He drank the full cup of wrath all the way to its dregs. There's not a single drop left for any of God's people. Ever. And when he sees his children in sin... you have to understand he's not looking at you like a judge. If you, have, if you have an adult child who is wayward, you don't sit there and say, oh, wait for me to get my hands on you. You don't say, you know what? We're going to have a talk. And I'm going to bring the full brunt of Sinai upon your rebellious heart. If you love your kid, you don't do that. you're heartbroken because of their waywardness. You're not angry because they're making you look bad. By the way, if you're a parent that you get angry at your kid because of the way they make you look, you're an idiot. You've made parenting about you. Parenting's not about you. Parenting is about that child that God has entrusted to you. We could, we could learn a lot from parenting, thinking about God as our heavenly father. God is our heavenly father doesn't say, wait till I get a hold of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wring your neck. He's heartbroken. Because we've exchanged the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that hold no water. And our father knows they're so much better for us. He knows what we're doing to ourselves. It breaks his heart. And so he has a desire to do what? To bring us back, to restore us, to do us good. That's our father. And so Jesus Christ paid the full penalty of all your sins. There's no judgment for you. And when we take the path of the prodigal, our father, just like the father of the prodigal, longs every day for us to come home. And So when Palmer Robertson says, this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, I cannot dispute that at all. Wrath is gone and it's gone forever through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, child of God. God has no wrath towards you. It was spent, spent, 100% spent on Calvary in Jesus Christ. No wrath, but joy, gladness, quietness, and loud singing. And so as you find perfect shelter in God's perfect son, you find your joy. And God in turn rejoices over you in the work he has done for you and the work he has done in you. And he delights over you because his son is your shelter. Let's pray. Father thank you for the book of Zephaniah and we pray that you'd use it in everybody's life today for those that are without Christ we pray that today you would draw them sweetly to the Lord Jesus for those who have walked with your son for a long time but have just forgotten some of these simple things turn their faith into a list of do's and don'ts and Judge your disposition on the basis of what we've done. Father, we pray that you take Zephaniah 3.17 and liberate them today. And may the last thought of our mind before we go to sleep tonight be that my God rejoices over me with loud singing. Because of Jesus Christ. Amen.